It's just me and Ellen Dershowitz paddling on a raft to nowhere on the salty, salty seas. <laughs> Greetings, listeners, and welcome to The Feminist Present, the podcast where we use the gift of feminism to figure out what the hell is going on between the years 1990 and 2000. I am Laura Good. I'm Adrian Daw. And as you've probably caught on, we don't only talk about the years between 1990 and 2000, but that has been preoccupying us of late during this season. And um, Adrian, you were very much the on-ramp to this week's film club selection. So can you tell us a little bit about your hero and mentor, Alan Dershowitz? Oh my God. Um, I can't tell anything, <laughs> anything about Alan Dershowitz other than that he is, uh, that the movie that we're talking about today is about him in the same way that like a rock star biopic is about that rock star like he couldn't have like yes. this story is not only told from his perspective it is told in such a way that makes alan dershowitz look amazing and if you've been paying attention to the news at all over the last three to four years the suspicion that Alan Dershowitz may not be that amazing, will have forced itself upon you uh, with a renewed force. I should say that those who've been paying attention are sort of like, yeah, you know, we've we, we've known this. But to, to some of us who kind of had tuned him out, I think, um, the last four years uh, of him as a Trump shill, Epstein defender, and, you know, literally uh, just pretty much all the worst things you could do and be. I'm sure he's also a corona skeptic. I mean, I wouldn't... It, there's no way that Dersh is like, I got my... I got my vax and you should too, right? <laughs> um, I don't know. So the movie we're revisiting today, 1990's Reversal of Fortune, is based on a book by him and is very much based in his perception of the infamous Klaus von Bülow case, which was a famous trial in 1981 and 2, I believe, here restaged sort of by Ron Silver as Alan Dershowitz, uh, with Jeremy Irons as a very slithery, weird yeah, Euro trash uh, Klaus von Bülow and Glenn Close as his wife and let's say more than likely murder victim <laughs> Sonny von Bülow. Mm-hmm. I wanted to talk about this movie for a long time and then I was listening to a to another podcast which was then still called I believe Why Are Dads but is now called You Are Good created by the amazing Sarah Marshall. Friend of the pod. Friend of the pod has been on Feminist Present before uh, when it was still called The Feminist Present because we don't change the titles of our podcasts no matter. <laughs> even when we change the central concept. Even when we change the format. Yeah, we're like we're like we're 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 committing to the bit, but anyway, Sarah Marshall, obviously famously of You're Wrong About, uh, has this podcast with Alex Steed, um, in which they mostly look at, or almost entirely look at movies, and in which they bemoan that they had not yet found a, a, an opportunity to talk about Reversal of Fortune. At which point, I I almost busted out my AirPods, screaming, Lunged "I want to be in this conversation. conversation! I want to do this!" <laughs> and I, I DM'd her, and long story short, uh, for this conversation about Reversal Fortune, we are joined by two very special guests, Alex Steed and Sarah Marshall, who are really knowledgeable about the way movies govern our emotions and sort of educate our emotions. Mm, I like and that. Especially Sarah's have brought to this movie that fascinated her was this question of like that it was really making a kind of unusual argument in Hollywood, which is the, the thesis of the movie seems to be, and I don't know if that's the thesis of the Dershowitz book, but it's definitely the perspective of the filmmakers, that most likely Klaus von Bülow did something uh, that was illegal and probably should have been prosecuted, but that he also got railroaded by the justice system and that both of those two things are true. And so we went into it really ready to hate this. And I think Sarah mounted a, a very effective defense of this this movie. And, um, you know, I came away appreciating it quite a bit more. I, f- I found it fairly ghoulish watching it, frankly. Uh, and, and I think she, she had things to say about it that really made the experience richer mm-hmm, for me, mm-hmm. which is, I think, always a good mm-hmm. thing. I'm not going to say that I feel differently about Alan Dershowitz now, but I definitely do feel differently about this movie, where I really, like, re-watching it, I really thought, like, why am I watching this? <laughs> and and now I feel like I could go back to it with a somewhat cleaner conscience, or a, a 
productively soiled conscience, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Your favorite kind of conscience. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I didn't quite know why we were watching this movie either when we first went into it, but I'm kind of game for those sorts of what we call doe in the woods experiences. And as I watched the movie and researched the figures involved in it, it became clearer and clearer to me how relevant this movie is to our current moment, you know? And we mentioned it a yeah. couple times within the interview, but one piece of media that I just want to shout out that like looms really large in this conversation is a 2019 New Yorker profile of Alan Dershowitz called Alan Dershowitz Devil's Advocate by Connie Brook. And there are just so many rich details in this 14,000 word profile that I really recommend everyone read it for themselves. But one of the things that you learn from this profile, and, and I will mention that The New Yorker is one of the most extensively fact-checked publications in existence. And the, I'm sure that when they're profiling a storied lawyer, they're going to fact check that pretty hard. Yeah. But like it paints this portrait of this person who is really in this person, Alan Dershowitz, who is really enamored with figures in the legal system who are somehow both guilty and oppressed, you know, yeah. like I think the author puts it something more like someone who is both guilty and being framed. And yeah. it's really hard not to think of that resonance with O.J. Simpson, you know, who Dershowitz right. will later go on to defend after the Klaus von Bülow case. And, you know, Connie Brock in The New Yorker also makes some really rich connections between... Alan Dershowitz's legal persona and his professorial persona and, for example, how fond he was in his law school classes of kind of relitigating rape cases in order to highlight how dangerous false rape accusations are. And it's asserted in the in the piece that, like, his students actually begged him to stop this behavior because some people found it incredibly yeah. triggering and upsetting, which is... Not at all hard for me to believe. Yeah. So he's a very multidimensional character, you know, when you start to research him on the internet as well as within the frame of this film. And uh, that was all like a really rich text for me to behold. Yeah, yeah. And I should say that there is also, of course, a question here about, I mean, so we, we talk about Dershowitz as a person a little bit, but I think that it's also important to note that this was a motion picture and it was a fairly yeah. uh, well-received one. It was a prestige one. And so the question mm -hmm. of how we narrate these stories becomes extremely important here and that's of course that's all that's what this present moment is all about how to narrate and whose perspective we get to narrate from right the fact that is there a case to be made that maybe Klaus von Bülow was railroaded possibly right what's still striking is that this movie takes largely men's words for it right like it's it's entirely Dershowitz mm -hmm. channeling what von Bülow told him Right. And the question of who gets to narrate stories of, of violence That's right. against women is, is extremely key. So I think it's not just an interesting case. It's also just an interesting aesthetic object. And, and I, I think as that, I was, I was really, really interested in it. The other thing I, I, oh, I should also mention that we're joined today because that's probably impossible for Megan to edit out. We have a very special guest. We have a very special guest. My uh, daughter River is here and wants to uh, apparently say hi. Friend of the pod. Friend of the pod um, and friend <laughs> of her own hand, which she's currently <laughs> ingesting. Uh, so that's what that's about. Uh, if you're hearing weird baby noises, then that's... Listen, we made a commitment to recording a podcast in a Panda Express that sometimes kids were going to burst in, and I, I thought they were going to be mine. Surprise! <laughs> well, in fact, I believe if, you, if you've been listening carefully to previous episodes, you found some Easter eggs left by River before. Um, she, she has not been edited out uh, effectively in her whales entirely, uh, entirely uh, but this is probably the, her most sustained... Um, Appearance, and we're you know we're... this was her blue ivy moment. Yeah, Let's be real. This is her blue ivy moment. Yeah, you're really, uh, you're really, and you're seizing it. She's like, I got the, I got the bike now, motherfuckers. I'm. Uh... I like can't even do the like sort of sophisticated legal analysis because I'm just like, look at those cheeks, look at that baby. Let's do a sophisticated oh legal analysis of those cheeks, huh? We are here for the feminist analysis of cute babies. You know, my three-year-old is the younger sibling, and he is obsessed with babies Ooh. lately. And I think it's just because, like, he loves finding beings that are smaller than him, you know? So, like, cuteness is very preoccupying to him. But sometimes it means that he'll just look at a kid who's obviously his age and go like, Oh, he's so cute. Oh, that's, that is cute. <laughs> it is cute. It is cute for now. It might be less cute, you know, later. We'll... we'll We'll check back. In, in college, it'll, it'll, it will not That's what bring I'm him saying. friends. Yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, should we take it 
Should we take it to the bridge? Let's take it to the bridge. River, do you want to say something to take it to the bridge? River, what do you have to say? <laughs> She's just like looking at the microphone, yeah. reaching for it, reaching for the wires, trying to chew through them. She's a little mouse. She's a little mouse. Well, so if River won't take oh us to the God. bridge, enjoy our conversation with Alex Deed and Sarah Marshall, who were kind enough to join us for this edition of the Feminist Present. Now, there it is. Uh, Feminist Present <laughs> Film Club. Enjoy. Thanks for joining us. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. Uh, hello, Adrian and Laura. <laughs> hello, Adrian and Laura. Hello. Hello, feminist present. <laughs> it's a spinoff. Okay, so I'm so glad that we're here to talk about our collective hero and mentor, Alan Dershowitz. I know he's oh, had boy. a profound impact on all of our lives and careers. So, Sarah, <laughs> could you start with how Alan Dershowitz has touched your life? Oh, God. Well, okay. He touched my life via Ron Silver um, in Reversal of Fortune, which used to be on AMC a lot, I believe, uh, circa 2003, which means I watched it a lot because I was a fan of whatever was on TV. And so I really got my worldview from a lot of movies that were like Pretty cheap to license based on how often they got rerun. (laughs) (laughs) And so Alan Dershowitz, Reversal of Fortune is one of those movies that makes you think there aren't that many movies about defense lawyers. And when there are, they have to explain how lawyer stuff works. Because in prosecution movies, it just kind of goes real smooth. You just kind of go with your gut in a way. And this is a movie that has a big, like, why do defense law speech? which influenced me so much. Like this movie has one of its many morals is that like guilty people can still be framed. And like, that's a big, a big (laughs) guiding principle in my work. I believe that like it, it is important to not convict people of things they probably would have done, but didn't literally do, whether we're talking legally or in the court of public opinion. And uh, I host a program called You're, You're Wrong About, mm-hmm. I co-host a program called You're Wrong About that addresses that very subject fairly frequently. So yeah, it's been influential. And Alan Dershowitz has become a shill for Trump and it has forced me to confront the fact that like, he didn't become um, morally unsound as much as he always was. And I guess my feeling now is like, well, sometimes you need someone really unscrupulous to say what needs to be said about an unpopular topic. That's where I am. Um, Sarah, can I read you an incredibly juicy tidbit of Nora Ephron's review of this film, Reversal Fortune, yes. for the New York Times? Oh my god! I I have... I, how did I not know that this existed? You, yes, I'm so do. excited to read oh this god. to you. This is from the 2019 New Yorker profile of Alan Dershowitz. Nora Ephron, reviewing the movie for the Times, noted Riley, Throughout, in the venerable tradition of defense lawyers who write books about themselves, Mr. Dershowitz made brilliant decisions no one else would ever have been brave or intelligent enough even to consider. (laughs) And I continue. Dershowitz wrote a letter to the editor complaining that Ephron was deriding his work in order to help get a friend's book about the same case published. The friend published no such book and Ephron replied, wasn't even a friend. (laughs) So much feuding. He locked horns with Nora Ephron. Like that's, you know, why, why bother? A, because you're going to lose and because it's Nora Ephron you don't don't make her do that the very definition of a person like don't pick a fight with someone who buys ink <laughs> by the barrel full um so so Alex tell us about like your relationship with this movie I have so I just watched this movie for the first time at seven this morning and um Sarah oh my god yeah so first of all I'm very lucky to have seen this movie for the first time just now but Sarah uh texted me this morning you can see why this movie propagandized so well for me I hope and <laughs> like I've never I've never seen I've never seen a more concise 
like one for one origin story in my life than like watching this movie <laughs> and knowing how Sarah turned out. Like this movie, like there are, there are like there are like full lines from this movie that just fully explain how Sarah turned out. Like the there are. Can you give us an the, example? Um, just like any time Ron Silver as Alan Dershowitz is explaining to the class, like or when he when Felicity Huffman first puts up a fight, right? And and then he just explains you know ultimately like why someone can be guilty but the legal system still needs to to be upheld uh he gives that explanation i can't remember any of the lines but yeah i mean i could see this shaping a young sarah marshall's psyche in a big way and then and then you know alan dershowitz as far as i know has just always been a little slimy like in television performance Mm -hmm. and it was really interesting and i just seeing sort of who he defends how he defends etc is like sarah has made me over the 11 years we've known each other now like exponentially more um less reptilian in my response to like uh right and wrong etc which has been actually a great gift of her friendship but yeah i think alan dershowitz is one of the few people i have given the benefit of the doubt before that and, and certainly now but it was really cool to see for the first time this just like how the fuck did this movie get made it's so it's so incredible like as sarah said it's advertorial you know it's like how did this movie get made about this guy that makes him look so slimy and great at the same time i i love i god i this was a a beautiful trip and i'm so happy we're we're taking it oh and also you should mention mr bagel (laughs) oh yeah in maine in maine there's like there's a sarah was sarah's visiting me in maine and and there's a um there's a bagel restaurant called mr bagel or bagel shop bagel restaurant sounds hilarious um and sarah saw the logo for the first time and she's like oh my god it's alan dershowitz and it's (laughs) it's not only is it alan dershowitz it's like alan dershowitz as portrayed by ron silver in this movie yeah it's the the, a little cartoon of him and he's making your bagel for you hot and fresh yes exactly (laughs) He looks ex- and then I looked yeah I looked up like press photos of Dershowitz from this time and they look exactly the same. <laughs> oh my god. I mean to get this kind of cinematic portrayal like I mean the universe is good to you at that moment. I mean <laughs> starting with with Silver's like amazing locks. I don't I mean yes. I don't remember Dershowitz's hair ever being quite that you know um that baywatchy <laughs> and yeah i mean the, the movie just really bends over backwards to to kind of position him my favorite little bit that i i hadn't sort of noticed that the fact that he's you know in this case defending you know a very rich guilty man so it gets played off again and again against the fact that he's also he's really using the money to get these two black kids off of death row mm-hmm. and so i got curious and i did some googling and it turns out they were white. Um, no. I was wondering this because I remember a similar case in his first book, The Best Defense. And I was always like, is that who those kids in Reversal of Fortune were? Is that a direct inspiration? So, yeah, that that's telling, I think. Yeah. It really, I mean, the, the, the it feels like the filmmakers just kind of were like, all right, like if, if Dersh says it, then it goes in, you know? Or like, we got to make this guy as likable as possible using a single case for storytelling econometrics. Yeah. I mean, the fact that they like, that they restrain themselves from like making him like also a basketball prodigy is really like, it's a nice moment of restraint, I think, for this film. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, this, this movie is filled with nice moments of restraint, I think, in many ways. <laughs> I am interested in like so many aspects of this, but I am particularly interested in the intersection of this film with two other cultural phenomena of mm-hmm. the last 25 years. The first is The West Wing mm-hmm. um, for two reasons. One, because this movie generally just feels very Sorkinian. Like it's just really similar in its bloviating structure to The West Wing, to A Few Good Men, to The Social Network, which also uses a sort of legal structure. Like I think there's a lot of comparisons to be made. But also mm-hmm. a fun fact I came up with is that Alan Dershowitz, unless there are other portrayals of him on screen that I don't know about, Alan Dershowitz has only been portrayed on screen by actors who were also in the West Wing. He was portrayed by Ron Silver here, Mm -hmm. obviously. And he was portrayed by Evan Handler in the O.J. Simpson miniseries. Oh, that's That's so I thought you were going to say Allison Janney. (laughs) Is she in here? No, but we'd love to. No, she's not in here. (laughs) Okay. 
But, but Felicity Huffman is, great. and Felicity Huffman yeah. is another alum of the Sorkin universe. So that brings me to my second point, which is the intersections of this film with the cultural phenomenon of Me Too. Mm. Obviously, we're going to need to do a little bit of talking about like Dershowitz's relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. Mm-hmm. I was really intrigued and eager to talk about Annabella Sciorra's performance in mm. this film. She is one of my favorite actresses generally. And... I was interested in her in two ways here. I was one interest, well, three ways. One, I was just interested in her performance because I think she's a fantastic actress. Two, she also emerges as an avatar of Me Too as one of Harvey Weinstein's accusers. Mm-hmm. And three, her character in this movie, and please correct me if I'm getting any of this wrong because like you, Alex, this mm. was the first time I've seen this movie. So what I took away from this is that the framing of Shiora's character implies her to be a law student, right? Like this is Mm. a whole team of law students that Dershowitz is assembling, right? Is that true? I don't know if I've ever read her as necessarily a law student, but she's definitely his ex. Yeah, I thought that they were partners. Um, Okay, so that's what I was... with other non-law students, but she's definitely his ex. That's relevant. Yeah. That's what I was getting to, because she's clearly implied to be his ex. Mm-hmm. And I was like, is this a situation where she is a law student who has already dated him in law school and is mm-hmm. coming back to date him a second time in three years? That doesn't sound off the table. Like, I I just assumed right. because, no. of their, because of the expressed background that they had dated i didn't i didn't know because like he as i was texting sarah throughout the movie like it feels like it feels like he's samuel l jackson in an avengers movie and like he goes out into the world (laughs) and assembles the avengers and brings them back from like their different corners and most of them are students but i yeah i got the sense that they had a background but yeah you you are going the not extra step but you're you're concluding that like perhaps that was also a one of his law students which wouldn't it doesn't sound Um, Yeah, yeah. So we're not, it sounds like we're undecided on whether these are just young lawyers or actual law students. I mean, some of them are law students and some of them are are grown up lawyers. There's a mix. My eyebrows were just raised. I was like, this is framed so casually that she is his student Mm. and they have already dated and there's still sexual tension and nobody sees any sort of like issue with this. Like that felt very early night. Well, I think that was also how the the Pelican brief got started, right? It absolutely was how the parking oh, brief got started so yes. it's definitely yeah. like an established way to have like a legal totally. thriller meet cute in the early 90s yeah and to your point like when you said that this reminds you of the west wing this this reminds me of the west wing like as directed by brett easton ellis like there's, because i was <laughs> saying to sarah yes. like i was I, I was like or written by brett easton ellis i guess yeah. i was saying to sarah what I, I find so interesting about this movie is like it has all these like soaring points about how like sometimes people who are not sympathetic need to be um, represented by not sympathetic people and never like kind of like in a Brett Easton Ellis novel or like movie like they're never like but that's gross like they don't sort of like underscore it like that they just present it as is they're like these are gross people these not these are gross people doing gross things but like this yes this is a little gross like this is this there are elements of this that feel that feel gross as Mm -hmm. presented by like a west wing vibe and feel but yeah i i I felt like that and as and i bring that up especially because like that reminds me of you know rules of attraction which just sort of casually you know came out not 20 years ago and just very casually presents the Mm. fact that eric still a teacher is is uh with one of his students who's the protagonist in the movie mm-hmm. yeah that movie is definitely a movie that i like watched and enjoyed in the early 2000s and look back on in horror <laughs> now there's like a super casual rape scene yeah. that like Sarah, is... that's about your school right yeah oh Freddie Sinellis was a bennington student i didn't famously. realize you went to bennington yeah. storied literary yeah, history briefly. around that college <laughs> yeah it was boring in the mid-aughts we were like i, I bet it's interesting again now but we were in like an an inter interesting period that really falls short of its reputation i know well they were really trying to be like a real college and not a place where camille Paglia like kicked someone who she was in a love rivalry with which is, as far as I understand, did happen once. I don't feel tremendously surprised to hear that. <laughs> if it didn't literally happen, it's the type of place yeah. where that type of no, thing would it, happen. It, it, <laughs> <laughs> Oh right. God. Wait, okay, so Sarah, you, I yeah. think, are of the four of us perhaps the most familiar with Reversal of Fortune. Probably. So could before we get too far along, could you give us like a 30-second plot recap yes. of like 
the main points of what's important to understand of this movie. Yes. Reversal of Fortune is about Alan Dershowitz, who is a law professor at Harvard who also likes to represent guilty clients, handling appeals for Klaus von Bülow, played by Jeremy Irons. Alan Dershowitz is played by Ron Silver of Blue Steel. And Klaus von Bülow has been accused of twice trying to murder his wife with an injection of insulin. She's now in a coma. And it's basically about the journey of choosing to represent this very fancy, very guilty-seeming man, and over time starting to be like, oh, maybe he isn't guilty. Or at least, like, if he is guilty, he's kind of seems to be being framed by his rich kids, perhaps. Um, and so it's, um, and there's like little speeches throughout about how like this case will set a precedent because if they win, then rich people won't go to the cops anymore. They'll go to private detectives and teeny tiny Sarah was like, yeah. Um, (laughs) and ultimately about securing the freedom and exoneration of someone who you honestly don't know if they're guilty or not. And being like, well, goodbye. Uh, And that's the movie. And Ron Silver Everything he wears is fantastic. Mm -hmm. He really favors the Canadian tuxedo Mm -hmm. in this, and it looks great. Thank you for including that detail. That's an important thing for for listeners to know, I I think think so. Yeah. Yeah. And and we might point out also, this is something, I mean, it's also famous for being partly narrated by Sonny Von Bulow from her coma. Right, yes. Oh, God. Yes. I, Played by Glenn I Close. I can't believe we have not said that yet. Holy crap. <laughs> yeah. And she's the one who's like, by the way, here's the story of, of my attempted murder or not. Played by Glenn Close, another West Wing alum. Sorry. Yeah. Yes. And then I, and I think that they... And the marketing played up the mm-hmm. Glenn Closeness mm-hmm. of it all to get more people to see it, and that that was controversial in the studio. She drops out of the movie by for like entire stretches. I mean, it, it does she feel, doesn't have very much screen time. Does feel feel fairly tacked on. And the first time I saw it, I was like, "This is like two different movies." There's a courtroom mm. film here, and then like a far more sort of surrealist take. Mm. But uh, Sarah, what you were saying actually made me realize that the two things are kind of connected because, of course, Sunny also. Is t- like her voiceover at the end is kind of about humility, right? Mm. She's like, what's the truth or something like that? And she's like, well, if, when you when you are where I am at or where I am, you you can know. Yes. It seems like the, whoever wrote American Beauty like was watching that and then <laughs> yeah, forgot yeah. that they saw it. <laughs> it's my most charitable guess. <laughs> I mean, there, there are so many things, there are so many things to your point about having to touch on like pre-Me Too. But like, mm-hmm. I feel like giving giving voice to a person who maybe was put into a coma by someone who got murdered in order to promote the lawyer for that guy is huge. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking I'm thinking of another story that's told in a similar structure, which is Alice Siebold's The Lovely Bones, in which a mm. murder victim is narrating the story from heaven. I think mm-hmm. that's literally like what they call it in the book. Um, but like the purpose in that book of that counter narration is to indict the killer, not to exonerate his lawyer, question mark. (laughs) It's a very different like means to an end. (laughs) Well, and also I'm curious about what people think the function of that narration is, because I feel like one of the things that it's doing is we have Glenn Close, who's in a coma. Jeremy Irons has been accused of putting her in a coma and she's basically giving us the backstory, not just about her comas, but also about, you know, she becomes this omniscient presence talking about everything that's going right. on now and also talking about how miserable she was. Yeah. And I do feel like we're meant to agree with this story of like, well, Sonny really probably mm-hmm. did want to die. So can't blame him too much. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and the fact, and, and of course, we see we see Glenn Close in the present as the comatose right. Sunny, and then we see her in flashbacks that are clearly based on his on his testimony. And so I, I found that really, that was really troubling to me. That on the one hand, she is, as you say, this omniscient narrator. On the other hand, she's essentially his puppet, right? She's, she's telling us this, the version of events that Klaus wants us to believe. And it's like, well, you know, he may not have been, you know, there may be some ambiguity mm-hmm. here, but there's something a little ghoulish about like, having her reenact this deeply unflattering, basically a flattering portrait of her potential killer's lawyer and 
her estranged husband's version of her. It just feel, it feels mm. very strange. Mm -hmm. I did give Sarah permission via text earlier today that if I were to die in a similar way to make sure that, that my VO was provided, you know, faith as faithfully as possible. Sarah's in charge of that. So if, if that very unique circumstance mm -hmm. happens, yeah. it's Sarah. Yeah. That's a good friend that you entrust I mean, that you're with. You're going to leave, you're, you're creating so yeah. much footage that... If it comes to that, we can probably get you to say anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Deep fake it. I have to tell you guys. So I watched this movie a couple days ago. And then the night after I watched the movie, I got up to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. And I was like half asleep. And I stumbled and fell as I was getting up and like oh, crashed no. back into the toilet. And like, it was fine. I have a big bruise on my butt, but like, it's fine. But as I was like tumbling in my own bathroom, I was like, oh my God. I'm gonna end up like Sonny oh, Von no. Bulow, like with my head underneath the toilet, and like my husband is statistically the likeliest person to kill me anyway. So like, what's gonna happen to him? And like, I was very much playing out the entire plot of Reversal of Fortune. Did you accidentally drink your your glass <laughs> full of insulin? Because all I've eaten every day for the last week yeah. is ice oh, cream. Um, yeah, that was, the details of her diet the, and like her relationship mm -hmm. to sugar. The ADR of her eating ice cream, like she yes it was yes. lip it was real mm. intense lip smacking and i couldn't handle it it was a lot <laughs> yeah I, and i have like never really noticed that this whole time it somehow. was you know it was so interesting to watch in this movie is because you know this this case reminds me so much of the staircase which i can't remember any of the details of mm. but like that that it was like, oh. it was like a case of a woman fell down the stairs we don't know if she was pushed out by the stairs we don't know if eventually like by mm. her husband we don't know if like she was mauled by an owl maybe like there are all sorts of different things that could have potentially happened mm. but it, it just mm -hmm. watching this and knowing that there was like no social media coverage at the time or there wasn't like a docuseries like immediately primed for it like knowing that mm. this case happened where where it was just the news you were contending with seems so quaint like you know what are they yeah. going to do with the fact that they yeah. have a recording of our voice like how are we going to beat that it seemed you know it see it it was what only mm -hmm. maybe 40 years ago but it could have been 100 years ago <laughs> Well, I think the appeals were like yeah. 30 years ago, even. Yeah. yeah. And also, I think that's what this book and then subsequently this movie is trying to be, because this is the rehabilitation in the public eye. And you end up with this image of Klaus von Bülow as Karami Irons, who like, my my impression of that depiction is that he's someone who's so fancy that he's collapsing under the weight of his own fanciness. And you're like, are you a murderer or are you just fancy? I can't even tell. Yeah. Are you, are you just like, are you just consummately strange? Yes. Um, I mean, and as, and I mean, like, first off, it's Jeremy Irons who like, even if he's like, I mean, if he shows up in any movie in the 80s and 90s, you're like, oh, that dude did it, right? So there's, there's that. I love this as your encapsulation of his career. His character in The Lion King is based on his role here. Like, did you notice? Oh, yeah. No, he's definitely, Scar is yeah. the Klaus von Bulow character. And the, and the callback where Simba's like, you're weird, Uncle yes. Scar. And Scar's like, you have no idea. <laughs> that was a really good Scar impression. Thank you. Oh, that makes my day. But even by the standards of Jeremy Irons, performances i feel like this is a this is an odd one he does it sort of like a like half alien reptile half sort of euro degenerate it's like um, <laughs> you know it really feels like a guy in a skin suit for for a lot of it and and you yeah. know i mean like, that would be not a bad twitter bio for you adrian guy in a skin suit oh, <laughs> yeah jeremy iron skin suit that's that's all what is sorry what were you going to say what was what were you going to say laura <laughs> no the ha the thing that adrian said the like half guy in a skin suit half alien reptile <laughs> Well, that's like, so do you good. ever see the Kroll Show character European Man, where it's like kind of a parody of Hannibal? That's right, yeah. And he's like, now here's the European's guide to cannibalism. <laughs> 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 Which I think is just playing on how Europeanness does read sinister to Americans because yeah. we're intimidated by yeah. knowing that people speak more languages than us and so on. <laughs> yes. Being multilingual is immediately sus, I feel. Very like. untrustworthy. Very suspicious. Americans take pride in being unable to communicate with our immediate uh, neighbors. Ah, yes. <laughs> uh, yes.
Okay, so Sarah, here's an area where I would like to engage your expertise as a um, as a scholar of the OJ universe. Oh boy! So yes. like there was, and I learned a lot of this from the 2019 New Yorker profile I was referring to. Mm. But there was something about that New Yorker profile was very focused on like outlining Dershowitz's methodology for like how mm. he wins cases, and it seems mm-hmm. like across cases and very much within reversal of fortune. And then I think we see this again in the OJ case. Dershowitz's method of winning a case is essentially he just exhaustively like whack-a-moles like any potential piece of evidence on the Mm. other side, right? Like he just Mm -hmm. systematically goes through and obliterates anything that could contraindicate his argument. Mm. And he does this through like aggressively obtained affidavits. And he does this by rendering certain speakers like incredible. And like, this is, this is what he does, right? And like the New Yorker profile talks about how this is also what he does to the woman who accused uses him of rape within the Jeffrey Epstein case is he just like discredits her very systematically and does so using the media. But Sarah, like, how would you parse that? I guess, how would Mm. you parse the similarities in like Dershowitz as an operator between Mm. the reversal of fortune case and the OJ Simpson case? Yeah, I mean, I think his use to the Simpson team is illustrated here, like both his character in this, but also his production of this text because this is based on mm-hmm. a book that he wrote where he I think mm-hmm. that he's he's become this major figure in 20th and now 21st century law because he understands that like working in the court of public opinion is necessary and he's been doing that since the 70s. Exactly. Um yes. And so I feel like that was the expertise yes. that he brought to OJ. For example, in the OJ Simpson trial, he was the one who came up with the theory that Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman were killed by drug kingpin hitmen question mark that had it out for right, Faye Resnick like marauding yeah, marauding cocaine because, like, Faye Resnick was doing some yeah. cocaine which obviously was a very unique thing in LA in the in the 90s and would make her a target for yeah. <laughs> assassins <laughs> yeah I mean I feel like that that seems like it's been the constant in his practice is knowing how to be meticulous legally and then very splashy in a public forum. One thing that I found fascinating with rewatching the film and my, you know, I always thought, oh, it's a courtroom drama, et cetera, et cetera. What I really found interesting this time around was, you know, after with memories of the OJ miniseries in mind is it's an appellate case, meaning there is no jury to play to. Right. And so the court of public opinion Mm. is kind of more curtailed. He's trying Mm -hmm. to convince the state Supreme court of the mistakes made in the, in the, in the first trial. And I found that that's kind of neat, right? On the one hand, it kind of, I, I don't know what the effect of that is on the film, but there is a kind of it takes emotion out of it, right? Like, unlike with OJ, mm-hmm. he's sort of just methodically knocking out one element of the case, of the prosecution's case after the other. So, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a funny kind of populism, right? He, he knows how to play to, to a crowd, but in this case, it's a crowd of, of lawyers. Well, it moves it out of the courtroom in a fun way, which is really nice. Like, it's like never dragging in the courtroom and it actually moves it. It feels like the real world. It's like he's got this like, or, or like a TikTok creator. <laughs> he's just like got this house full of these like exuberant, lawyers and his son doesn't it seem like a sitcom <laughs> like what if it gets it does they, that, they should have made that yeah and when i when i've had to explain the appeal of this movie to other people i always tend to mention that i love how you know he has all these like you know these students and these colleagues and this team of people move in which i don't know if that literally ever happened um and in, in real life would be a situation like ripe for abuse of boundaries and perhaps other things if if anyone felt like doing that, but which always appealed to me so much watching this because I always just wanted to be like part of a team. Yeah, and yeah. like wearing t-shirts with pieces of evidence on working them. Working together with Motown on and you're making a bunch of spaghetti and mm-hmm. you're playing basketball together. Like it just made it look like summer camp, honestly. <laughs> totally. I love the like the straight up gallows humor <laughs> of all of these people. Like I, I really like right down to the last line right. is Jeremy Irons talking to the shopkeeper and he says that he he's he'd like to order some insulin and then deadpans it for a second and then says just kidding. Like I love how because i mean if you think like think about like how high these stakes are for anybody like (laughs) innocent guilty in between or not to deal with all of this to be any of the lawyers to be the people who are involved like 
I couldn't get through it without being dark as hell all the time. And I, that's what I enjoyed that this honored, like it wasn't, it wasn't like a, any one of the number of like nineties legal thrillers that like feels kind of heartwarming. It wasn't heartwarming into y'all. The eighties was not, I mean, I know this was representing the seventies. It ended on a minor key. Yeah, totally. The the eighties, like when this was made, just like nothing was heartwarming. Everything felt <laughs> felt very intense in one way or another. Yeah. I really I enjoyed that quite a bit about this. This ends on a darker note right. than Wall Street, Good which point. is a real faith in the system movie, and it ends with like dropping Charlie Sheen off to go testify <laughs> against his boss and then go to prison for a, a quick minute. And it's like very soaring. It's like trust the process. Here's no, there's no, there's no trust the dirt here. Yeah. Um, is there a, um, so I, I was wondering, does the yeah. film's gallows humor extend to like gender questions as well? Because there were a couple of places where I was like, is it just mm. that we're seeing it with different eyes now, or is the, does this movie have some mm. sort of self awareness? And one of them has to do with this kind of animal house framing. The fact that he mm-hmm. has the big idea mm. that's going to help them get Von Bulow off, essentially, by essentially just staring at the chest of one of his law students. And I'm like, you, you're you aware of what you're saying there, right? Or mm-hmm. or or not. Uh, like, is, Or was this a perfectly normal thing to do in 1990? That never occurred to me, honestly. But yeah, of course. And that's all. I think that's George's bad date from an early episode <laughs> right. of Seinfeld. Or the, or the fact that he, well, yeah, speaking of people who then ha- went on to sitcom success, the dressing oh, yeah. gown he gives to Felicity Huffman when she's like, why are we, why are we defending this guy? His example is mm-hmm. all about child abuse. I'm like, yeah, that, that lands differently now. Uh, yay, you know. Yeah, right. she went to jail for the opposite of what she did. Yeah. I do actually, I I think that child abuse thing has aged perfectly because I'm in the satanic panic business. That's true. I actually, the scene you were just describing, Adrian, I actually found incredibly Sorkinian, the construction of a female who is placed in a scene solely for a man to educate her about why she is wrong about a principle of feminism that she thought she understood. (laughs) I don't know. I'm also really glad that you brought up gender in connection to Dershowitz as a professor here, because like we've already talked about his possible romantic involvement with students. There was also a moment, I wonder if any of the rest of you noticed this, where Annabelle Sciarra's character is talking about precedence in the state um, that they're proceeding Mm -hmm. in legally. And she makes some point to him about like there being a favorable legal precedent for this case. He blows her right off, goes upstairs, and then a man reiterates exactly the same point and Dershowitz is like that's brilliant we've done it oh, sure. and I was like yeah. oh mm-hmm. I wonder what his course evaluations from women students were like yeah, oh God. <laughs> In the New Yorker profile, she's interviewed former students of Dershowitz's, and a recurring theme that comes up is that apparently Alan Dershowitz was obsessed with bringing up false rape accusations as a sort of, like, example of legal outliers Mm. in class, so Mm. much so that his female students begged him to stop talking about this so much because, of course, there were rape Mm -hmm. survivors in the class. So I I think Mm -hmm. it's clear all around that Alan Dershowitz was an exemplary teacher and mentor to women everywhere. <laughs> and also, I think became a full professor when he was like twenty nine, which wow. is just like what was, what was the world yeah. back then? There was just like you know long necks chomping on leaves, <laughs> and then there was Alan Dershowitz, full professor at twenty nine. Pretty much the scene at the very end. It's like the last ten minutes of the movie where they both describe what they imagine happened. I love that scene, and I I thought mm-hmm. that that was I thought that that was pretty incredible it's to good, show yeah. both of their different interpretations. And like I found hers much more compelling. And the other thing that stood out to me is, you know, he says he essentially said mm-hmm. like there's so many great lines in this movie that I, I can't I can't remember specifically, but he's essentially saying the reason why everyone is critical of Klaus is because like every man can imagine a situation in which he wanted to kill his wife. And I was like, I'm of two minds of that uh, on that. It's like Mm -hmm. one, I'm like, yeah, like Sarah has talked to me about this a lot to the point where I've internalized this for over a decade where it's like, yes, like a lot of the issues that we have, particularly with like being afraid of serial killers is not wanting to touch our own scary impulses. And like, it's, it's all that other person. It's not us. This isn't something we're capable Mm -hmm. of. It's part Mm -hmm. of them. But then also like, Alan, what the fuck are you thinking about all the time? Are you thinking about killing your wife? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, and I haven't read this profile, but I I would imagine this would be part of it. Didn't his, I think his first, didn't his first wife allege severe abuse? Mm. Yes. Yeah. 
Yes. And later died by suicide. Yeah. Yes. Oh, oh gosh. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And he system this, they cover this extensively in the New Yorker profile. He systematically dismantled her case against him in exactly the legal way that he does with everything mm-hmm. and destroyed her, like took yeah. full custody, you know, like divorced her, left, left her with no money. Right. And that's literally a thing that happens here about like, about why did she try to commit suicide? Was it because, you know, her life was made hell by mm-hmm. you ultimately, which is a fascinating question. And then it also makes it interesting that his, ex- his like first to mind example, and I don't know who wrote this or if this is directly based on the book or what, but that the Felicity, the example right. he gives Felicity Huffman is like, say you and your husband are getting divorced and he accuses you of molesting your son. And it's like, yeah, that's a real dirty trick that a guy might play while divorcing uh, his the mother of his children. Huh. It's interesting. So, you know, we've talked about you're wrong about it a little bit, but I, I know you changed the name of your podcast together. It used to be called Why Are Dads? And I, I was interested, mm-hmm. one gendered aspect that was stuck in my memory, at least, mm-hmm. until I rewatched it now, um, is to what extent Klaus's masculinity sort of becomes the issue in his version of, of Sonny, which is all we get for mm. most of the movie until mm-hmm. Annabelle Sciorra and Ron Silver take over and kind of narrate her mm-hmm. end in different mm-hmm. alternate versions, but where she keeps nagging him that he, you know, he's not a man, you know, I, I already have a butler, right? Be a man. It's all about his masculinity. What do we make of that? Do we think that that's just from mm-hmm. the book or is that the theme, secret theme of this movie? Not so much uh, why our dads, but w- w- why does masculinity matter here? Why is masculinity here? And the great line, I don't want the children growing up thinking a male's place is in a duck chair. That's right. <laughs> about a four out of 10 on the impression scale. (laughs) I mean, I feel like, and then there's like the fact that Klaus wants to work. And Sunny's like, why work? We already have a ton of money, I assume is her her line there. I mean, one of the things I would say about that is that if you're making a movie, you by definition have way more material than you can possibly include. And if you want to make the story sympathetic to your audience, then like framing him as someone whose masculinity is being piecemeal taken away by the wife who he may be, mm. you know, I mean, one of the the possible scenarios also put forth in this movie and that I find as believable as anything else is like, yeah, he could have like injected her with insulin and put her in a coma, or he could have noticed that she had put herself in a coma and just be like, hoop de doo Yeah. do 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 I didn't see anything. Mm. And if you want an audience to come around to to sympathy for this character, I feel like that's a calculated choice in how how to frame the lead up to that crime, if there was one. Interesting. The thing that stood out to me was not, I'm not going to say it's not like overtly sort of a masculinity or masculinity under attack, but I, the thing that Dershowitz as a character in this movie immediately notices and doesn't like about klaus is that klaus always has to be right yes that's real dad shit like if you that's like Mm -hmm. that's the daddest of dad shit from why are dads like that's the stuff that we would talk about a lot is it's like having to navigate life Mm -hmm. with a person you know in in and as dershowitz like later does in like legal technique is like if the rules don't work for you change the rules that's Mm -hmm. the more dad shit like these are these are Mm -hmm. men in one way or another operating in the ways that feel crazy making when you're on the receiving end of it and that is Mm -hmm. you know that's it's kind of how they end up getting along like that's how they kind of end up becoming friends and they're dueling daddies they really are dueling Dueling daddies daddies. yeah and in my sitcom spinoff of this klaus (laughs) after he's exonerated would come live in the house where they're all doing legal stuff together and then they would you know, every week they would have to land in a new town, mm-hmm. you know, like small town Kansas. And Klaus would be like, what crime are we investigating this week, Alan? <laughs> so, you know, you know this, that means that the structure of this movie is basically planes, trains, and automobiles. And oh, my end, God, it is. At the end, he comes over uh-huh. for Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah. In Act 3, they land in Brentwood, where they will take on a new case together. <laughs> Oh, I love it. That's so great. Pitch it. So I hadn't thought about this. I I love that point, Alex, that in some way, so on the one hand, you have Sunny who from her bed says like, you can't ever know, right? You don't, Mm -hmm. you will not know what's going to happen. And then you have Klaus who keeps saying this phrase and it's so beautiful the way Jeremy Iron does, what you must understand, right? And and it drives you, you can tell that like, 
that's clearly something that drove the actual Dershowitz mad, right? It's like, mm. I do not. Like, I'm your defense lawyer. Like, what you must understand. And it's always like some preposterous thing where you're like, that doesn't even seem right. Um, <laughs> but, but, but it is exactly this dad energy that he has where, like, he needs to be in control of the narrative. Mm. And, and that's not how the legal system functions. It's like, maybe I should understand that, but I can't sell it. And it's mm. and that's bad for you, and it makes me a bad lawyer. And I I, I always love that this kind of insistence uh, that like you know, and and then you have the, the sort of more mocking, ironic tone of Sonny, who's like, you're not gonna understand, right? right? Like mm. at the, the center of this is something is this incomprehensible man who can't fucking stop joking about yeah. the crime he was just committed for. Mm -hmm. uh, he claims unjustly, yeah. In a lot of the great like comedies of this time, and I'm not saying this is a great comedy of this time, but a lot of like thinking well, of planes, trains, and automobiles, <laughs> like a lot of a lot of great comedies of the time are about like two dads or two men trying to navigate their styles oh, yeah. around each other. Like mm -hmm. the great out the great outdoors is another one that just came yeah. to mind where it's like a good dad and a skeevy dad trying to like figure it out mm -hmm. together. And like, right. yeah, this this movie is two dad styles trying to trying to figure out how they coexist now i want steve martin steve martin as as alan dershowitz oh my <laughs> god like, come on Klaus, you yes. really gotta <laughs> yes please three men and a baby is also right around this time yes. too mm -hmm. like the ultimate yes. boring amateur dad film i was just listening to disney war and there's a story in that about how michael eisner i believe saw the original the french movie that three men and a baby was based on and was like we have to get the rights to this movie. People are going to love it. It's going to be huge. And people were like, really? And he was like, yeah. And then it was. Get me Steve Gutenberg, a phrase never again yes. uttered in, in human get history. <laughs> I know Gutenberg is fascinating because he like, and around this period, he was just, he was huge. And then no one ever talked about him again. Yeah. Just like this movie, which like I think won an Oscar for Jeremy Irons, and like so many people have never it's heard true. of it. I had never heard of it until this discussion really? started to emerge. Yeah, I was like, "What is Reversal of Fortune?" And then I couldn't believe that I had never seen it on AMC at two p.m. when I would have been just as soft a target for it as a young Sarah Marshall was. <laughs> yeah, I forget which episode of the podcast it came up on, but I, but the moment I heard Reversal of Fortune, like I've, I had had these like massive flashback. I was like, "Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god!" Oh my god. Email them now. Like yeah. there's my misspent youth watching AMC. AMC is interesting because I feel like now we know it. I don't know what it is now, but at least recently it was the home of kind of new exciting prestige TV. Mm -hmm. And before that it was like the bargain basement TCM where <laughs> a lot of the time they play a movie, you'd be like, I don't know if I call this a classic. <laughs> like, no, trust us. It is. American, yes. But I feel like I feel like this is not I mean, I again I'm so new to this. I hadn't even heard of this movie before today before you had reached out about the movie, but like I feel like this is a classic. Oh, this one is, yeah. <laughs> I don't know the context oh, yeah. for it, but I would make sure to ensure that people see this in one way or another. Like, I want people to see this movie. It's so weird. <laughs> well, so I, so you guys on what was once Why Our Dads and what is now You Are Good, like you guys are also doing a little bit of like film club chatting mm -hmm. lately. So like, can you talk a little bit about like, can you plug your show a little bit? Like what's going on on You Are Good lately mm. and what should people tune in for? We have an upcoming episode about The Perfect Storm, which may have recently come out by the time this episode is out, but I'm excited about that. And lots of summary content. We try to be seasonal. Are your guests choosing each movie or are you guys recommending movies to we, guests? Typically, they kind of have a selection of stuff they'd like to talk about and we choose one of them. Mm -hmm. Or sometimes we guess they're mm -hmm. like, hey, you want to come on and talk about this specific thing? And they're like, yeah. <laughs> Alex, what is our show about? It's a feelings podcast about movies. <laughs> I love it. I love it. You know, I think like most movies podcasts are about like, like what is happening around like the social context or like what's what ha how it was technically made or why it's specifically funny. And we're trying to talk about like how it makes us understand our feelings better, but we I think in the conversation it's a lot less awkward than the way I just described it. Mm -hmm. I like that. So I guess I'm going to lob this question to Sarah, just because I know she has a longer relationship with the film. How did Reversal of Fortune help you understand your feelings better? Hmm. I mean... Or what did it help you understand about your feelings? I guess, like, I, I cannot escape the fact that I have something in common with at least the person that that dirtbag Alan Dershowitz would like us to believe that he is. 
which is someone who's like, yeah, but like no matter how awful the defendant, they still have rights. And like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. everyone is protected by the Constitution, especially the awful people or the people who we, as far as we can tell, are awful. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I guess like it's just me and Ellen Dershowitz paddling on a raft to nowhere on the salty, salty seas. <laughs> Same as it ever was. And of course, and of course, he's he's making that case at the end of a decade where, as you know, you and your other work uh, point out quite a bit, that lesson could have really been uh, assimilated a little bit more thoroughly, right? Where like people seemed ready to just believe just about anything for you know, and mm-hmm. actually pleaded in court. Uh, I think that it's an interesting thing that this came out at the. It's it's kind of mm-hmm. a decade closing kind of movie in that way, right? It's a verdict on mm. what what trials mm. can can reveal mm-hmm. about a society. I'm shocked this movie got made hmm. when it got. I am honestly shocked it got made. I'm not shocked because like when they when. You know, Irons won an Oscar. Was he? Did he win the Oscar for this performance? Like he, I won... believe he did. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, so. it, and yeah. this was much more at a time when like Oscars movies were movies that like people largely didn't see. Like there wasn't like it was like there are the movies everyone sees, and then there are the movies that come out in October for the Oscars, and like no one sees them. Mm-hmm. So like, so mm-hmm. like maybe that's mm-hmm. the case. But like, I am honestly shocked that a movie that more than ten people saw came out in this decade that was so ambiguous about who the good guys and bad guys are. Mm. Which is probably why I liked it so much. And also that the movie itself takes the attitude of like, so did Klaus do it? Who cares? Which honestly, the more I think about it is like the animating principle behind most of my work. Did he do it? Who cares? (laughs) (laughs) What do you feel? We're like, we're not allowed to know. So moving forward. (laughs) Well, I feel like that's kind of an elegant place to leave it. Did he do it? Who cares? (laughs) I mean, like, and also I think like a lot of people I know care, like, and it it matters if, if you knew these people or sure there there are reasons to care, Oh, for sure. but I guess it's like, it's, it's standing against the sort of core value of much of American media, which is like, it is the right of every citizen to know if someone did it or not. And a story has to tell you who did it also. And it's like, most of the time in real life, we just don't know. Right. We just don't know most things. And like, we just don't know. Yeah. Like, I think jigsaw puzzles are really fun to do. And I think mysteries are fun to watch for some of the same reasons, because it just unlocks something pleasurable in your brain to like see the picture coming together. And I appreciate anything that models a narrative where like you get to the end and you're like, shrug. <laughs> yeah. It's something that I've learned so much about from your work. Mm. The fact that that these narrative formats that sort of give us this kind of illusion of eventual transparency are are so seductive, Mm. but also can be quite dangerous precisely because we don't know why people in real life actually do the things that they do. And, you know, Klaus von Bülow isn't, you know, for whatever his faults are, is a pretty good exemplar for that theory to Mm. say that like this is just a genuinely Mm. whatever he did he's a genuinely weird guy you're (laughs) you're just not gonna know uh right like like anything with this guy is gonna seem implausible right like it's it's just very hard very hard to. and maybe he seems like he's been getting away with some shady stuff for his whole life but we're not putting him on trial for that we're we're putting him on trial for like what has the state been capable of proving about Mm -hmm. this specific Mm-hmm. span of time yeah yeah which also kind of circles my mind back to me too and uh, these allegations that came out and you could sense that like you know in the weinstein case in the epstein case you could sense that what was coming out in terms of what was verifiable was always only the tip of the iceberg of what had actually happened right mm-hmm. like the only the only facts mm-hmm. quote unquote that emerged were the things that could be verified by lawyers and journalists and then there were a whole lot of tragic stories that didn't have that kind of corroboration and that seems related to this mhm oh yeah right and and also i guess if you don't expect every story to give you a, a full picture, then maybe you can get more comfortable with the understanding that whatever you learn from the news, like you, you might get nowhere near the actual mm. story. I always think about this at the end of horror movies. I'm like, how is this lady going to explain this to the cops? Yeah. You know, right. you have to apply that to yeah. real life. It's, like, <laughs> it's not my chainsaw, I swear. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's what they all say. <laughs> it was one of those self-defense chainsaw murders. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you guys so much for discussing this wild cinematic journey with us. I mean, if there's ever another Alan Dershowitz representation on screen, which like given his last couple of years, I think seems likely we'll have oh, yeah. to, oh, yeah. to discuss whichever West Wing alum plays him next. We can also talk about some people versus OK Simpson. Oh my God. Oof. Certainly the role of a lifetime for Mr. Evan Handler. Yeah, I, uh... <laughs> Maybe he'll get played by Martin Sheen. I was just, like, really nominating. I was like, will it be Martin Sheen? Like, Bradley Whitford is getting to sort of Dershowitz age. Yeah. I could see Richard Schiff Bradley doing Whitford. it. Like, there yeah. are any number of West Wing alums <laughs> left on the roster. Call Alice them and Alice Janney. and Janney. Why not, you know? <laughs> we could just do, like, that, you know, the Bob Dylan movie where he gets played by, like, oh, eight yeah. or nine different people. Truly, yeah. that is a more... Is that with West Wing actors. That's a more panoscopic, like, portrayal than than Alan Dershowitz truly deserves, but um, but I suppose you could just make an argument that Alan... We gotta get the kids, we gotta get the kids in, back into the theaters and you know, probably <laughs> an eight, eight or nine actor biopic about Alan Dershowitz. Fuck Dershowitz! Dershowitz. That's how you get the teens. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it's a good thing none of us are development executives. <laughs> Yet. Yet, let's say. Um, Thank you guys again for joining us. And if either of you is ever on trial for your life, I suspect the other one will write a really good book about it. And we will rent a house and you can come make spaghetti and work on the case with And us. be on the team. I'm now yeah. hearing Sarah <laughs> saying, what you have to understand is that Alex hated doctors. <laughs> I can see the montage now. Oh, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Well, thank you so much. This was so much fun. The Feminist Present is co-hosted by Adrian Dobb and Laura Good. It's produced by Laura Good and edited by Megan Kalfas. All of our original music is by Julie Herndon. We are eternally grateful for funding support from the institute named for a woman in a building named for a woman, the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University, where we are especially grateful to our feminist colleagues Cynthia Newberry, Allison Dahl Crossley, Natalie P. Mason, Jennifer Portillo, Wendy Skidmore, Shivani Mehta, Carolyn Asante Darty, and Morgan Kanan. The Feminist Present is also co-sponsored by the Changing Human Experience, producing deep ideas for a better world by supporting Stanford Research in the Humanities and Social Sciences. 